Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Genius, like gold and precious stones, is chiefly prized because of its rarity. Geniuses are people who dash off weird, wild, incomprehensible poems with astonishing facility and get booming drunk and sleep in the gutter. Genius elevates its possessor to ineffable spheres far above the vulgar world and fills his soul with regal contempt for the gross and sordid things of earth. It is probably on account of this that people who have genius do not pay their board as a general thing. Geniuses are very singular. If you see a young man who has frowsy hair and distraught look and affects eccentricity in dress, you may set him down for a genius. If he sings about the degeneracy of a world which courts vulgar opulence and neglects brains, he is undoubtedly a genius. If he is too proud to accept assistance and spurns it with a lordly air at the very same time that he knows he can't make a living to save his life, he is most certainly a genius. If he hangs on and sticks to poetry, notwithstanding sawing wood comes handier to him, he is a true genius. If he throws away every opportunity in life and crushes the affection and the patience of his friends and then protests in sickly rhymes of his hard lot and finally persists in spite of the sound advice of persons who have got sense, but not any genius, persists in going up some infamous back alley, dying in rags and dirt. He is beyond all question a genius. But above all things, to deftly throw the incoherent ravings of insanity into verse and then rush off and get booming drunk is the surest of all the different signs of genius. And that was a reading of the poem Genius, penned by Mark Twain and performed by Jordan Harling. And we'll be hearing more from Mark Twain in the Arts Express Playhouse in his buried but unearthed here, Contemplation of Endless U.S. Wars. So stay tuned. But first, Tony Danza talks about Taxi Tupac Shakur, collaborating with MC Hammer musically on Too Legit to Quit, and what's new and different about his latest Standards and Stories summer one-man musical performances and storytelling stage tour, Danza's unique fusion of personal stories and songs. The former boxer and small-screen star of the Taxi sitcom Classic, along with Danny DeVito and the late Andy Kaufman, also discusses what personal reinvention is all about for him through the decades. And as the real deal, playing working-class characters as the son of a Brooklyn sanitation worker, along with his special friendship with late rapper legend Tupac Shakur across prison bars and up until Tupac's tragic death, and Dance's own venture into rap himself, sampling a little personal serenade for us during this conversation. First, some standards and stories on stage, then Tony Danza. If they could see me now, that little gang of mine, I'm eating fancy chow and drinking fancy wine. I'd like the stumble bums to see for a fact the kind of first-rate, top-shelf chums I attract. All I can say is, wow, he look where I am. Tonight I landed, pow, right in a bowl of jam. What a setup! Holy cow, they never believe it. If my friends could see me now, if they could see me now, my little dusty group, traipsing round this million-dollar chicken coop, I'd hear those thrift shop cats say, "Brother, get him." Draped on a bedspread made of three kinds of skin. All I can say is, wow. 
As long as I'm singing, there's a bell up in my brain that's ringing, making a crazy ding dong. And if this band don't desert me, then there's nothing in this world can hurt me. No, being in New York City, single, at this stage of my life, well, you know, as, as you could probably imagine, it's uh, nice. <laughs> nice, yeah. Actually, it's, it's probably a little better than you can imagine, tell you the truth. <laughs> and just so you know what stage of life I'm in, I, uh, I'm in possession right now of my uh, reduced fare senior citizen metro car. What chemical forces flow from lover to lover? How little we understand what touches off that tingle. It was a very good year for small town girls and soft summer nights. It was so cold that New Yorkers were making eye contact. <laughs> Walking down the street going, yeah, I know. <laughs> I love New York. I really, I just, I love it. Until the real thing comes along Love is lovelier The second time around Just as wonderful With both feet on the ground My mother was an original Bobby Soxer and her love and adoration for the man, Frank Sinatra, and his music were all, all consuming. And when I was a kid, I'd be helping her clean the house on Saturday mornings before she'd let me go out and play in the street. And while we, while we cleaned, she played Frank Sinatra her music, her records. And, and every once in a while, she would stop me. Stop, stop, listen. Listen how he sings this. And, and I would listen, but I would watch her. And the way... The way she reacted was, it was wild. And to, and to see your mother, when you're a kid, you see your mother react like that to anything, it blows your mind, you know? After I was on TV for a while, I started feeling full of myself, you know, acting like that. She would bring me back to earth with a very simple, hey, big shot. When you introduce me to Sinatra, then you're a star. <laughs> maybe I'm weak and maybe I'm strong, but nevertheless, I'm in love with you. Maybe I win, maybe I lose, maybe I'm in for singing the blues, but nevertheless, I'm in love with you. I don't like to drop names, you know? Don't drop names. My friend Bobby De Niro told me that. But I took my troubles down to Madame Ruth. You know that gypsy with the gold-capped tooth. She's got a pad down on 34 Divine. She sells little bottles of love potion number nine. Tony Daza, how are you? Okay. What has been new and different for audiences with standards and stories this time around? Well, you know, I, I always think the show's a surprise itself because I, I just don't think people are expecting to see what what we actually do. Um, so I think, you know, one time when I, I mean, this is the truth, when I first started it, and like in 95, I was working with Walter Painter, the great production guy, and he said to me, you know, we need a surprise in this show. <laughs> we need a surprise. And then I worked for a while with him, and he came back to me. He said, you know what the surprise is? Is you. You're the surprise. So I like to think that's what it is. Uh, we got a bunch of new stuff that we're doing, and, and uh, um, I'm really excited about some of it. Uh, and one song that I'm, I just really like is uh, Do It the Hard Way by Chet Baker. You know, so I've, I've been learning how to scat. So I may unveil that. <laughs> How did the idea for these performances come to you that's been described as, quote, 
tap dancing, playing the ukulele, and performing music while interweaving stories from your life and a personal connection to music. That's a pretty, pretty, pretty good description. Uh, I don't know if I can beat that. But, but how the cut it came about was, you know, I, uh, I got a job at the Carlisle uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of years ago. And, and, and you just, you know, I write these, you got to write your shows. You know, you just, you write, I wrote, you know, we, I used to play the Regents of New York City on 61st, uh, on uh, Park Avenue, and Michael Feinstein's place. I used to play there every year, and every year you'd have to have a new show, because the, the paper wouldn't review it if it wasn't a new show. So I just write these shows, so I wrote this. This one just happens to be the best one I've ever written, <laughs> you know? And speaking of music, what led you to be part of the music video, Too Legit to Quit?, with MC Hammer and James Brown back in 1991. And what are you up to in that music video? <laughs> you know, you're going, too, you're going back further than I care to remember. It's really the problem, Prairie. Uh, oh, I, you know, listen, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I do a little film in my act. You know, I don't know if you know this, but I, was, I am an act, I am a, a rapper. Mm. People don't know this. No. But I'm a rapper. You heard of uh, Vanilla Ice? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm Italian Ice. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'll give you. Can I give you a sample? Let me sample something for you, okay? Oh yeah. Now, what is a friend for? Too rich and too poor. Kind of like a marriage, about the way it was before. A friend could tell you things that he wouldn't tell another. So in essence, a friend would be considered a brother. You laugh and you play a lot. You talk and you say a lot. But when it's time to feel the pain, you cry and you pray a lot. I'm talking about you. You who had the time, the time to be my friend when no one else would be mine. Peace out. <laughs> <laughs> So you never know what you might see when you come to my show. And what do you feel is the enduring fascination of Taxi through all these decades and with new generations as well? Well, it's, it's how about that? It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. It's uh, thought-provoking. It's, um, it's so uh, emblematic of another time of TV when we actually tried to do plays on TV, little tiny plays, little 22-minute and 40-second plays, instead of all the reality baloney that we watch now. <laughs> I mean, there was a time that, you know, people sat down and really, you know, and that's what I think it, it, people miss that, uh, number one. Uh, you know, <laughs> just so you know how much of a, a taxi nut I am, aside from, you know, we, by the way, the taxi cast and Jim Brooks, get together every month for a Zoom through the whole pandemic we've done it. Uh-huh. We do it every month. We spend like two and a half hours on the phone drinking and eating and laughing and talking what's happening and so great. So we're still together, which is which is an amazing thing. Um, but uh, the other, a couple of years ago, there was a telethon, a taxi telethon here in New York. I don't know. It's on some channel. I can't even remember where it was, but I, I watched 19 episodes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't stop. I, uh, I love it. I love it. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just a fact. And for me, it is the moment that my life changed. Hmm. Now, you wrote to the late Tupac Shakur when he was in prison, and the two of you became friends. What can you say about what led you to that friendship? And anything you'd like to share about Tupac, who still seems so much alive in the popular imagination, and your friendship with him? Well, you know, I'm really worried. Uh... My big concern is the the kids of our country. Uh, I think that uh, it's so much harder to be a kid nowadays than it was when I was a kid. And and that's what, you know, was the basis of writing to Tupac. He was in jail. He had five bullet holes in him. He had thug life written across his stomach. And I was saying, well, I wrote him that considering his situation, maybe there's another way to go about his life that would not only keep him from being in this situation, but also uh, uh, have a, a, a positive influence on so many of the kids who look up to him. And uh, he thought that was a good idea and wrote back to me, and we started conversing about that and uh, or corresponding about that. And uh, and that really, what I mean, you know, people make a bigger thing out of it because when he made his movie Resurrection, he went on he went on and on about you know getting a, notes from me and. Um, you know, so that's all it was. It was just an attempt to uh, to reach out to somebody who I thought would, you know, would have a lot of influence on the kids, and and maybe the way he was doing it uh, 
was not positive. And I often say as a film critic, why are millionaire actors or middle-class actors always playing working-class people, yet you're one of those actors who is the real thing, that you're from working-class roots and the son of a blue-collar worker, a sanitation worker. What do you think those genuine roots bring to characters and to your characters? Yeah, my father's a garbage man, yeah. Yeah. City, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, the, the, the one thing that immediately comes to mind is a work ethic. You know, my mother and father, uh, they just worked. And and so I, I try to work. I mean, I, I don't think you can, you know, you can't keep it going, you know, for any amount of time unless you work. And so that's that's number one. My number two is I, I get it. You know, you know what else happened to me that really is different, Prairie? Yeah. So I got lucky, and and just to be crass, I made a lot of money, you know, who's the boss, and I was doing really, really well. And, it, and you know, it's you start to, you know, you live a different way than everybody else because, you you know, you're making that kind of bread. And then I had some, some, uh, some not bad luck, but things didn't go my way. And so... I struggled. You know, the first 15 years of my career, I, I didn't have a care in the world. The next 15, I struggled. And I struggled to keep it going, and I struggle. And I say to myself, if I'm struggling, what must it be like, you know, for the regular guy? Yeah. You know? And so that gives me a certain amount of empathy, a certain amount of, um, of uh, understanding of what people are going through. And so that gives me, uh, I don't know, that that allows me in, in a character to to find that empathy, but also just as intellectually, it's just better than being, you know, unawares. And getting back to standards and stories, how did the idea for these performances first come to you? Oh, well, I want to see, I've been chasing this now, this, this song and dance cabaret thing since, 1995 and it is something that you can't learn you can't nobody can teach you it nobody can you can't read about it in a book you have to go out and do it and unless you have Pavarotti's uh, voice it's scary it's really scary and you it takes a lot of guts to go out there and open your mouth and not know you're going to be successful so it takes a long time to get good at it and to and to actually you know especially if you don't have those incredible pipes, I can sing, but, you know, but you, you, you have to go out and do it over and over again. Some nights you sing in a, in a great, uh, you know, a casino or a, or a performing arts center, and the next night you sing in a ballad as the, as, the, as the roller coaster goes by. But it's that experience that gives you the ability to stand up there. And so what you try to do when you do the act is not only perform, but you try to make an, a connection with the audience. In other words, uh, things that evoke some kind of emotion in them that is 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 uh, mutual, and so uh, you know, I, t- I, t- I tell a story about my mother meeting Frank Sinatra. <laughs> you know, I mean, people can identify with with that. You know, so it's it's that kind of thing. And I I just you know I took some stuff that I've been thinking about. I picked a bunch of great songs and tried to put them together. And and oh, and then the one last ingredient that you must have. Uh, you got to have a great band, mm-hmm. and uh, the, you have to surround yourself with the best musicians you can because they're going to really make you sound a lot better. Yeah. And I have a really wonderful, wonderful band. And are you up to anything next? I see you're working on Darby Harper wants you to know about a woman who has a business counseling ghosts. And do you play one of those ghosts? Uh, yeah, it's a movie we did. I did in uh, South Africa in February, in March. I think I don't know when it's coming out. I, I was looking for it in the, uh, the paper this week. I didn't see it, so it must be later in the year. Um, and I'm, I'm working on a whole bunch of stuff, actually. Uh, you know, I've uh, I've um, I've let it be known that you know I'm just out there working. So I, you know, I here and there working on stuff, chasing parts, like every other actor in New York and mm. in, in in the world. <laughs> and when Tony Danza looks in the mirror, what does he see? pretty old guy now um, and he sees somebody who believes that uh, he's got to leave the world a little bit better than he, than he found it 
And one of the things I do, Prairie, is I work uh, for the Police Athletic League here in the city. I'm on the board. And we started a program. It's called PAL Teen Acting. And the slogan of it is PAL Acting, because when you teach a kid how to act, you teach a kid how to act. And uh, we've had over, well over 1,000 kids go through the program oh. now. We, we have over 100 <laughs> in college. We, uh, um, we're, we're, we're actually considering on going out on our own and, and starting this uh, foundation. So I just think that people, uh, you know, when I look at myself in the mirror, I think about the guy that uh, got this big, huge break in life and should do something with it. Mm. So you know why? Yeah. You know, I taught the Philly a year down there at Northeast High. Northeast High. And uh, and a lot of the teachers are coming to see me. I hear Joe Connolly's coming <laughs> and Peggy DeNaples. <laughs> Okay, thank you, Tony Dazzer, for calling in. So nice talking to you, Barry. Thank you. Bye. And more about Tony Dazzer and what he's been up to in his many artistic incarnations is online at TonyDanza.com. And now on Arts Express, a great way to have an argument about man's rights to create or destroy is to have two scenery-chewing actors make a buffet of it. Actors on movies... Patton Oswalt tries out a new hat as movie critic with his top and bottom sci-fi choices of all time. Hi, I'm Patton Oswalt. I'm a comedian, I'm an actor, I'm a writer, and today I'm going to break down my top five and bottom five science fiction films. So here we go. Look, before we go do the bottom five, I don't enjoy trashing movies anymore only because I've made enough movies to know that even the worst movie on the planet, someone broke their back trying to make it. Someone loved it, someone wanted it to be good, and sometimes they don't come out good. So, A for effort, but your thing sucks. Let's trash them, here we go. Log Mr. Spot, Starfleet Commission reactivated. List him as science officer. Both effective immediately. Star Trek the motion picture is so, it's oatmeal colored uniform, everyone in a bad mood, nothing really happens. They get to this thing at the end where it's a Voyager spacecraft, but it thinks it's God. You're like, I've seen this plot a million times. In fact, I think that was a plot of the Star Trek show. I'm glad that Star Trek the motion picture exists though because it is such an absolute failure in adapting the source material that it made them go make Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan should basically be called, sorry about that first one, Here we, here's the second one. It's, we'll, we'll make it really good. I don't think you have to have expertise in the source material, but you have to have a sense of fun and a sense of joy. Know what, at least what the core of the engine that makes a tick is and know how to use that. That you need. It's beige people on a gray background in a bad mood for two and a half hours. That's what they should call Star Trek The Motion Picture. Beige Trek. I am a general. You are still a child. Oh God. Oh God. Is somebody trying to tell me something? Phenomenon is so annoying because they they deal with some genuinely intriguing concepts, which is what would superpower, superintelligence look like in someone who did not have them before. It's this weird kind of flowers for Algernon, but without the uh, medical treatment that makes him smarter. But then it feels like the movie gives up in the third act and says, oh, all the powers that he has, it, it was a brain tumor, don't worry about it and then we'll cut it out and he'll be normal again. Like, it's it just this weird, like, we, we took him this really intriguing journey, okay, and we asked him a really cool question. Oh, nice. Well, this will be, ah, don't worry about that. Wait, what? No, I want to, no, no, wait, it's just a tumor, we're done. Great science fiction doesn't ask amazing questions to then go, actually, not, not come to think of it, don't worry about it. Deep Blue Sea, I don't totally hate Deep Blue Sea because it has a moment that I still won't spoil if you haven't seen Deep Blue Sea that when I saw it, the packed theater gave the scene a standing ovation. And I think you know the scene I'm talking about. However, 
It's another one of those things with Independence Day where they're asking you for a buy that is so ridiculous if you think about it for more than a second, which is uh, Saffron Burroughs' character wants to cure Alzheimer's. Good, noble effort. So she has found a technique. It doesn't cure Alzheimer's, it slows Alzheimer's. The side effect is, in order to get this slowing treatment, sharks become super intelligent. So to stop grandma babbling about people that aren't there anymore, our oceans are filled with genius level killing machines. That does not seem like a good trade-off. Like, and no one in the movie is like, wait, no, you can't. Yes, obviously we wanna cure Alzheimer's, but that's insane. You, what are you doing? They'd be like going, I, I have invented a scratch-free linoleum and in the process of doing so, uh, cancer is now airborne and contagious, but but the linoleum will never scratch. It's worth the trade-off. Like, no, it's not worth the trade-off. It's just the weirdest thing to have in the middle of a movie with some really lame special effects, some truly great surprising scenes, and uh, a great last line of dialogue from LL Cool J. So I'm very, very torn by it. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Independence Day, okay, look. Independence Day, on the one level, is so frigging entertaining. It is a really big, fun, I saw it opening day, people were losing their minds, I was cheering along with it. It's just an example of a movie that they ask so many buys of you. There's so many, like I understand that the aliens seem to be there to just destroy this planet and take the resources, although after you destroy the planet, how do you get the resources? I don't really understand that part. But there's a scene that they cut out of the movie, which I don't know why they cut this out, and it's a really quick scene where one of the scientists says, actually, we captured some of their spacecraft back in the 50s and 60s, and we've used their technology to build cell phones, computers, so our technology is kind of like, just have that one line in there so that, oh, that's why they're loading the virus up. I get it, that makes sense. So they were so excited to have like three more seconds of explosions that they took out this one element the filmmakers so didn't trust that we could deal with five seconds of dialogue that would explain something. They were so worried about not shaking keys in front of our face for five seconds that they left that out. And that's always like left a bad taste in my mouth. On the beach, look. I know it's Stanley Kramer adapting a Neville Shute novel, and I know it's very important, but um, it's one of those movies that unfortunately there's nothing worse than a movie where it knows how important it is, so the whole underlying attitude is you're welcome. The, the characters are all, basically, they know that they're doomed, they know they're gonna die, and I don't, I don't wanna sound mean, but some of their last dreams they want are kinda dumb. Like Fred Astaire wants to win a motor race, who cares? And and look, there've been plenty of bummer post-apocalyptic movies and TV shows, Threads, Testament, The Road, but at least in those movies, people were struggling to, to do something. These Everyone in this movie is like, just get it over with. And then you as a viewer are like, yeah, get it over with. Why am I sitting here? You, you don't even look like you wanna be in this movie. Have a couple of foolish characters in the movie at least that are like, oh no, I know I'm gonna die, I'm gonna still try to live. Even though I know I'm gonna end up puking my spine up and losing all my hair, I'm gonna at least try. I'm gonna try to do something here. Everyone in this movie is like, I'll just have this one last auto race and then we'll all have poison and then we'll be done. I'm like, then why did I have to watch this? Top five. Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? It is very cold in space. 
The reason I picked Wrath of Khan is because it was such a corrective for a bad science fiction film. Not just a bad science fiction film, but a bad way to adapt material of someone not paying attention to what made the original material great. And then part two was like, no, this is why Star Trek is fun and awesome and lasts, and we're gonna lean into this aspect of it. And it's just a great reminder that you can massively screw up and then correct it. Even if you've never seen the show or don't know any of its mythology, it is such a lean, basically revenge thriller. And in the middle of it, they somehow have a pretty solid argument about not only do we not have the right to take life, do we have the right to create it on a planet-wide scale? But again, that's all in the background. What's, what's on the top is two insanely hammy performances by Ricardo Montalban and William Shatner basically trying to out-top each other. A great way to have an argument about man's rights to create or destroy is to have two scenery-chewing actors make a buffet of it. Hasta la vista, baby. Not a necessarily original idea. It was uh, borrowed heavily from two episodes of uh, The Outer Limits that Harlan Ellison wrote, Soldier and Demon with a Glass Hand. But basically, it's a really deep meditation, not just on fate and can you affect your fate, is your fate predestined, but also if you know what's coming in the future and you know that the future is doomed, it would drive you insane. How far are you willing to play along with acting sane so that you can then function in the real world and maybe try to stop the future. But everything I just said pales in comparison to these genuinely amazing special effects that by today's standards, the amount of care and craftsmanship. What was so brilliant about Terminator 2 is Terminator was a huge hit and which is, it's an unkillable robot who is here to kill someone and, and switch the future. So they subvert their own genre that they kind of created in which now the Terminator that we're used to has been sent back and is unable to kill. He's there to protect, we don't know that. That, that always drove me crazy. When they, they cut the trailers together, they made it very clear that Arnold's there to protect the kid. But if you watch the movie, it's structured that you don't know who the good or bad guy is until the last second when they're in that hallway and Arnold protects the kid. Get down. And Schwarzenegger's character is this, what could be worse than a human being that's a Sherman tank that just can't be stopped? I know what's worse, a human robot that's a Porsche, basically, that's sleek and fast that can outrun the tank. So there's a whole other level of terror to this. Close Encounters, I rewatched it last year. That movie has aged so well. There's a huge unspoken revelation coming that no one can really put their finger on. These aliens are trying to make contact with Earth and the government is trying to suppress this information and keep it away from the normal people that have been contacted, basically. The Richard Dreyfuss character, who his performance is incredible. He basically becomes a true believer, but it shows you the cost of believing in and knowing for a fact that something way bigger than our current reality exists. It makes it really hard for him. He's a family man. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. But it's hard to take your kids' Little League game seriously when there are massive forces that you know exist that are trying to contact you. You see him withdraw from the world because of what he now knows. And it's so weird how that seems to be happening in both evil and good ways to a lot of people we're living with now. Close Encounters is about the disintegration of a family. Despite all of the big special effects and the wonderful chandelier spaceship and all the lights and all the sounds, there's a tragedy at the center of it. A family is destroyed and the father leaves the planet. It's really difficult as a dad watching that movie now, but, but seeing how brilliantly it's done, how brilliantly they nail it. The special effects in something like Close Encounters, I think are more effective now because they have a more genuine sense of wonder because it's not just a shoulder shrug and oh, they did it on a computer. They had to figure out how to build these models and integrate them with the film you're watching and make it seem like that's happening. Your sense of wonder matches the character's sense of wonder when they see these things. 
It truly is something miraculous that they managed to pull off. Good day. It ain't human, Frank. What I love about Fire in the Sky is it in itself is not a great science fiction film overall, but it has a sequence that is so good and so frightening, and it's the closest I've ever seen on film to what it would be like to encounter an alien culture and alien technology where, I mean, I would guess to a Neanderthal, um, a cigarette lighter or a typewriter would be terrifying. Like, to, to just look at those things moving, it's so beyond what your brain knows. So there's a scene where a character is taken aboard an alien spacecraft and they do experiments on him. What is so eerie is how unhurried the aliens are when they're doing what they're doing to the character, and they're also clearly following a set procedure. They're not torturing him, they're just doing, they would do experiments like you would tag a bear in the woods, but a bear getting hit with a dart and having a tag would be terrifying. And so it's a human, you are now a bear in the woods being tagged, and it shows you what that would feel like. But what makes it so brilliant is he only remembers this tiny sliver of the experience, and he can't quite put it together, and we can't put it together. So it's one of the best depictions I've ever seen of what it must feel like to encounter not just an alien culture, but an advanced technological culture. We have two notes, one that was written here and one that was left on the door. If you didn't, and if the other Hugh didn't, then who has been leaving the notes? Coherence uh, is a little, micro-budgeted science fiction film that was shot in uh, five days, uh, basically in one location. A very tense, taut science fiction thriller that is done with basically no special effects, no fast cutting, but you're on the edge of your seat the whole time watching a very simple thing happen science fictionally in which reality fractures, there are now different versions of yourself and different versions of overall reality out there that you can just go walk into if you want. What do you do with that knowledge? What is the danger of that? It's a lot like another film called Primer where it's more about the idea and how it affects human beings rather than the special effects and the whole visual of it. It's amazing. And if you watched all of this, thanks for hanging out with me. I know I got kind of annoying there in the middle, but uh, I do appreciate it. And thank you to GQ for that satirical, when not savage, Patton Oswalt insider take on movies. And we'll go out now with the Arts Express Playhouse and a rather unusual cancel culture uncancelled solo performance this week. Basically, a Mark Twain take on same U.S. wars, different day. Stay tuned and all will be revealed. This is Jack Shalom, and in our continuing uncancelling censored stories feature, here's a story by Mark Twain that was never published until after his death. The War Prayer was written in 1905 in response to both the Spanish-American War and Philippine-American Wars, but even Mark Twain didn't have the courage to publish it in his own lifetime. It was left unpublished at his death in April 1910. Twain said about it, I have told the whole truth in that, and only dead men can tell the truth in this world. It can be published after I'm dead. Here now, the war prayer. It was a time of great and exulting excitement. The country was up in arms, the war was on. In every breast burned the holy fire of patriotism. The drums were beating, the bands playing, the toy pistols popping, the bunched firecrackers hissing and spluttering. And on every hand and far down the receding and fading spread of roofs and balconies, a fluttering wilderness 
of flags flashed in the sun. Daily the young volunteers march down the wide avenue, gay and fine in their new uniforms. Oh, the proud fathers and mothers and sisters and sweethearts cheering them with voices choked with happy emotion as they swung by. Nightly the packed mass meetings listened, panting to patriot oratory which stirred the deepest deeps of their hearts and which they interrupted at briefest intervals with cyclones of applause, the tears running down their cheeks the while. In the churches the pastors preached devotion to flag and country and invoked the God of battles, beseeching his aid in our good cause in outpourings of fervid eloquence which moved every listener. It was indeed a glad and gracious time, and the half-dozen rash spirits that ventured to disapprove of the war and cast a doubt upon its righteousness straightway got such a stern and angry warning that for their personal safety's sake they quickly shrank out of sight and offended no more in that way. A Sunday morning came, Next day, the battalions would leave for the front. The church was filled. The volunteers were there with their young faces alight with martial dreams. Visions of the stern advance, the gathering momentum, the rushing charge, the flashing sabers, the flight of the foe, the tumult, the enveloping smoke, the fierce pursuit the surrender. Then home from the war, bronzed heroes welcomed, adored, submerged in golden seas of glory. With the volunteers sat their dear ones, proud, happy, envied by the neighbors and friends who had no sons and brothers to send forth to the field of honor there to win for the flag, or failing, die the noblest of noble deaths. The service proceeded. A war chapter from the Old Testament was read. The first prayer was said. It was followed by an organ burst that shook the building, and with one impulse the house rose with glowing eyes and beating hearts and poured out that tremendous invocation. God, the all-terrible, thou who ordainest, thunder thy clarion and lightning thy sword. Then came the long prayer. None could remember the like of it for passionate pleading and moving and beautiful language the burden of its supplication was that an ever-merciful and benignant father of us all would watch over our noble young soldiers and aid, comfort, and encourage them in their patriotic work. Bless them, shield them in the day of battle and the hour of peril, bear them in his mighty hand, make them strong and confident, invisible and invincible in the bloody onset. Help them to crush the foe, grant to them and to their flag and country imperishable honor and glory. Uh, an aged stranger entered and moved with slow and noiseless step up the main aisle, his eyes fixed upon the minister, his long body clothed in a robe that reached to his feet, his head bare, his white hair descending in a frothy cataract to his shoulders, his seamy face unnaturally pale, pale even to ghastliness. With all eyes following him and wondering, he made his silent way. Without pausing, he ascended to the preacher's side and stood there, waiting. 
with shut lids. The preacher, unconscious of his presence, continued with his moving prayer and at last finished it with the words uttered in fervent appeal. Bless our arms, grant us this victory, O Lord, our God, Father and Protector of our land and flag. Now the stranger touched his arm and motioned him to step aside, which the startled minister did and took his place. During some moments, he surveyed the spellbound audience with solemn eyes in which burned an uncanny light. Then, in a deep voice, he said, I come from the throne bearing a message from Almighty God. And the words smote the house with a shock. If the stranger perceived it, he gave no attention. He has heard the prayer of his servant, your shepherd, and will grant it, if such shall be your desire, after I, his messenger, shall have explained to you its import, that is to say, its full import. For it is like unto many of the prayers of men, in that it asks for more than he who utters it is aware of, except he pause and think. God's servant and yours has prayed his prayer. Has he paused and taken thought? Is it one prayer? No, it is two, one uttered, the other not. Both have reached the ear of him who heareth all supplications. The spoken and the unspoken. Ponder this, keep it in mind. If you would beseech a blessing upon yourself, beware lest without intent you invoke a curse upon a neighbor at the same time. If you pray for the blessing of rain upon your crop which needs it, by that act you are possibly praying for a curse upon some neighbor's crop which may not need rain and can be injured by it. You have heard your servant's prayer, the uttered part of it, I am commissioned of God to put into words the other part of it, that part which the pastor, and also you in your hearts, fervently prayed silently and ignorantly and unthinkingly. God grant that it was so. You heard these words. Grant us the victory, O Lord our God. That is sufficient. The whole of the uttered prayer is compact into those pregnant words. Elaborations were not necessary. When you have prayed for victory, you have prayed for many unmentioned results which follow victory, must follow it, cannot help but follow it. Upon the listening spirit of God fell also the unspoken part of the prayer. He commandeth me to put it into words. Listen. O oh, Lord, our Father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth to battle. Be thou near them. With them in spirit, we also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O oh, Lord our God, help us to tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with the shrieks of their wounded writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. Help us to bring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. 
help us to turn them out ruthless with little children to wander unfriended the wastes of their desolated land in rags and hunger and thirst sports of the sun flames of summer and the icy winds of winter broken in spirit worn with travail imploring thee for the refuge of the grave and denied it for our sakes who adore thee lord blast their hopes blight their lives protract their bitter pilgrimage make heavy their steps water their way with their tears stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet we ask it in the spirit of love of him who is the source of love and who is the ever faithful refuge and friend of all that are sore beset and seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts amen ye have prayed it if ye still desire it speak the messenger of the most high waits it was believed afterward that the man was a lunatic because there was no sense in what he said you've been listening to the war prayer by mark twain this is jack shalom for arts express with host prairie miller That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.